You know, as I prepared for the final message today in Friendfluence, I want to talk to you about my best friend, Jesus. I want to talk to you about, it's going to be somewhat personal, but at the same time, they're just principles that I've tried to mine out of the scriptures to put in there. I've lived almost 70 years. I've learned a lot from experience. Growing up and struggling with so many things about friendship and knowing who true friends are, what real friends are like, and knowing what it's like when there are people who claim to be your friend, and then just when times get tough, they just walk away. And I'm not alone in that. Every one of us in this room could probably share a similar story when we've been hurt. I've had people who told me how much they love me when I've made a decision that they didn't like, who did from that moment on decided they didn't want anything to do with me. And then I've had people that didn't like me when I made a decision they liked, they become good friends. So I kind of feel like C.S. Lewis, I always want to please the Lord. If any of you remember the name of C.M. Ward, C.M. Ward was an evangelist that for years was featured on a radio broadcast called Revival Time. C.M. Ward says, if you try to please anybody but God, you will always be unhappy. He says, I can't even please my wife all the time. How many of you can say amen to that? You know, it's just the fact we live for an audience of one. Real friendships are made for trouble. Last week, one of the verses I shared with you from Proverbs 17 and verse 17 is that friends were born for trouble, for adversity. You know, they're not born from trouble, but born for trouble, born for adversity. And I like that. I like that because in the Hebrew, it is just so clear. There are friends that you may make in times of adversity, but true friends, real friends, are friends that when adversity comes, they don't give up on you. They still walk with you, and they're committed to your friendship. Real friendships not only are made for trouble, but real friendships are tested. Sometimes it's kind of like marriage. Marriage is tested by poverty, it's tested by sickness, it's tested by pain, it's tested by setbacks. I remember a counselor telling me years ago, you really don't know if you love your wife until you've had a fight with her. And I was like, wow. You mean I've got to fight with them to know if I love them? And he goes, yes. He says, as long as everything is smooth sailing, as long as everything is easy going, as long as you agree on everything, you really don't know if you love each other. Now, I have learned something in my marriage. I don't go looking for a fight, okay? Because if I pick a fight, I'm going to lose. All right? That's just being honest with you. But I did find that to be true because I can't remember a single argument or disagreement that Becky and I had until after we got married. And so there's a little girl in our church sometime. I shouldn't say a little girl, a teenage girl in our church. Sometimes she'll go, oh, marriage, like that, you know. And she's just as sweet and delightful as she can be. But I remember Becky and I were talking. It can be sometimes like marriage. Because marriage is tested, marriage is proved, marriage is tried in the fires of affliction. Which brings me to what I want to share with you today about my best friend. Unlike even Becky, unlike my very best friends that I would call in this world, Jesus knows my every thought, Jesus knows my every desire, Jesus knows my every failure. And he's still my very best friend.
Now think about that for just a moment. He knows your every thought. He knows your every desire. He knows your every failure. And yet Jesus still loves you. And when things go from bad to worse, he will never abandon you. The Bible says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto the Lord with a voice of triumph. Can we give him a hand of praise for that? He knows me, but he still loves me. And that brings me to this scripture that I want to look at this morning, James chapter 2 and verse 23, where the Bible says that Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. Read that last sentence with me. He was even called the friend of God. Now, the Bible tells us that God would come down and talk to Moses as a friend would talk to a friend. Jesus made that powerful statement that we started this whole series with several weeks ago when Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. It's how I can say to you, and I, and I was honest and I confessed to you in that service that day, I believe it because Jesus said it, but I still have a hard time wrapping my head around that the great God of the universe is my very best friend this morning. Because I'm used to thinking in terms that I belong to him by right of creation. I'm used to thinking of him in terms like I'm one of the sheep of his pasture. But for Jesus to say to me, not only does my Father in heaven adopt you, but we will come and live in you and dwell in you and you will be in us you are my friend. Friends, that is amazing grace. Can you say amen? And when the Bible says that God came down in Genesis, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 18 and talked to Moses, it's one of the, this is a really strong theological word. You may want to write down a definition for this. It's a weird passage. Genesis 18 is a weird, how many of you know what the word weird means? It just means you know, that's not normal. That's not the way things should be. You know, people are doing strange things. You know, one of the things we say about Woodland, we want the power of God. We want the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. We want the fruits of the Spirit. We want the, the gifts of the Spirit. But we don't want people acting weird and doing things that aren't biblical. But this passage to me is a weird passage because God comes down from heaven in the form of a man and he's walking the face of the earth, and the Bible says that he is coming to look for himself to see if a city called Sodom and another city called Gomorrah are so bad that he should destroy them. How many of you are familiar with that story? Can I see your hand? Almost all of you. Okay. Well, the story is, and even in our American phraseology, in our American terminology, people are familiar with the term Sodom and Gomorrah. But why would the God of the universe, the God who created everything, why would he need to come down and check things out for himself? He knows everything. Remember what I said earlier? He knows my every thought. He knows my every desire, but he's still my best friend. But the God of the universe comes down, and as he approaches, he comes to the to the house or the tent of Abraham and Sarah, he comes right to their front door or the front flap of their tent, and he and Moses begin to commune as friend with friend. And so God says to Moses in this very weird passage, God says to Moses, he says, Moses, let me tell you why I've come. 
Let me tell you why I've taken on this appearance of being a man. This is what we call a theophany in, in theological terms. Let me tell you why I'm doing this. I am coming to determine whether or not I should judge and destroy Sodom. And Lot's terrified. Lot's petrified. And Lot begins to, the, the word in the Bible they use, he approaches God. It's a legal word. It's like coming before a judge. It's like if you're called to come up before the judge for a speeding ticket that I'm sure none of you have ever gotten, or if you're called to pay a fine that I'm sure none of you have ever had to pay, and you go and the judge calls you to come forward, you approach the bench, okay? You approach. That's the same word that's being used in Genesis 18, that, God, that Abraham begins to approach God. And the reason this is so important is, number one, God comes down because you are significant to God. God comes down because Abraham is significant to God. You are not just lint in a belly button. You are not just inconsequential in the great theme of life. You matter to God. And how many times have we sat around Woodland, lost people matter to God? Can you say amen? And so the God of the universe that you cannot approach unless he comes in a way that you could approach him, which explains why Jesus came how he did. The God of the universe comes down, talks to Abraham as friend to friend, and when God tells Abraham what he's going to do, Abraham begins to bargain with God. And if you've ever been overseas to an open-air market or a fresh market, you'll see ladies who are out buying their produce. They're negotiating the price for the onions and the tomatoes and the potatoes. Or you and I, we go to the car dealership, and we negotiate the price of a car. We're trying to get them down. They're trying to get us up. And it's almost like that, that Abraham is in this negotiation with God, and God gets into the act. I mean, God just simply gets right into it with, with Abraham. And it's, it's a friendly exchange, but it's an important exchange. This, by the way, you might want to write this down. This is the first extended prayer in the whole Bible. That's the reason this passage is so important. And yet it's so weird that the great God of the universe appears to a man like Abraham. And if you know anything about Abraham, Abraham, like you and me, had plenty of his own failures and yet God still called him his friend. And you may not be perfect, and I'm definitely not perfect, but Jesus still calls us his friend. Can we give him a hand of praise for that? I mean, it's so cool. So totally cool. Now, what Abraham does then, he goes to God and he says, God, first of all, would you, would you destroy the city if there were 50 righteous people in it? God thinks about it and goes, no, I wouldn't destroy it if there were 50 righteous people. Well, all of a sudden, Abraham sees that his friend is open to negotiation. He says, would you destroy it for 45? He says, no. He said, would you destroy it for 30? He says, no. How about 20? And God says, no, if there are 20 righteous people there, I won't destroy it. And then finally, Abraham says, just be patient with me. Bear with me one more time. If there are 10 righteous people in Sodom, would you destroy it? And God says, no. You see, Abraham, remember I talked about being a bridge builder last week? That's what the word priest really means. And the Bible says that we're all kings and priests unto the Lord. Priest means a bridge builder into our culture, a bridge builder to lost people. 
Abraham is building a bridge. He's interceding. We just finished 21 days of fasting and prayer as we interceded for our lost friends. We said we'd call it an experiment. And look what God did in this sanctuary last week as you and I prayed and we invited our lost friends to come to Jesus. Abraham is on to something that the book of Hebrews tells us about later. And that is that Abraham is understanding that there is a possibility that the righteousness of the righteous somehow or another could be transmuted or given to the unrighteous. So he's saying, God, would you spare the city if there were 10 righteous people, this unrighteous, this violent, this arrogant, this sensual city? Would you destroy it if there are 10? He's thinking this way. Friends, follow me. This is important to understand why Jesus is our best friend. Because he's saying, is it possible that the righteousness of the righteous will prevent the judgment of God upon the unrighteousness of a city. And why he stopped at 10, we won't know until we get to heaven. But Hebrews chapter 7 makes it very clear that it's because of one man, one great high priest, one friend of ours named Jesus Christ, that his righteousness has taken away our unrighteousness, and Jesus' righteousness has become your righteousness and my righteousness. We are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Well, somebody say, come on, victory this morning. I mean, I feel like I've got jet fuel in my veins this morning because the righteousness of God has been given to me. You don't know this, but every Saturday night after our second Saturday prayer services, while we're waiting for the Facebook feed to go off, Becky's playing the final music, and she's going down this scale of notes, and a couple of times she stopped, and it just it's like nothing's wrong. I go, no, you got to go hit that last note. And so she always looks at me now, just y'all can't see it because we're all fair. She always looks at me now. She just kind of teases me holding that finger up in the air because it's just, aren't you like that? Do you have a little bit of OCD in you? You just, you got to have that last note for it to be finished. And so finally she'll go ding or whatever it is. And I went, oh, everything's good now. The righteousness of God, the one that comes to us, Abraham's priestly ministry couldn't save Sodom. But Jesus, listen, Jesus is proof of God's will, his greater will. Jesus is proof of the amazing grace of God that his desire to save is much greater than his desire to condemn. John 3, 17, for God did not send this world, his son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Would you stand with me and let's pray, and then we're going to go through this real quickly. Heavenly Father, there is no way we can grasp the depth of this principle and walk out of here sufficiently awed and sufficiently confident in, O oh Lord, our faith becoming overwhelmingly powerful unless you help us so I ask you to help us to see just why we can say Jesus is my best friend. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated.
I think the first thing that I get from that scripture where James in the New Testament says that Abraham was the friend of God is, is I can know God. You can know God. We've all heard the phrase, especially those of us that grew up as baby boomers, know yourself. We have all know that phrase about learning how to discover ourselves and what makes us tick. But unless you get to know God, you'll never know yourself. Unless you come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and know who God is, you'll re really never know who you are because you're created in the image of God. So as I'm looking at you this morning, every one of you, I see the image of God in your life. When I'm walking through an airport and I'm seeing a, a, someone from Africa, I go, image bearer. When I see someone from Thailand, I go, image bearer. When I'm working with the poor in Bangladesh, I go, image bearer. When I see the prostitute on the street, I go, image bearer. When I see anyone in this world, I look at them and go, they bear the image of God. They are proof, the cross is proof, that God's will to save is greater than his will to condemn. The Bible says in Psalms 145 and verse 3, you are wonderful, Lord, and you deserve all the praise because you are much greater than anyone can understand. And when I look at that phrase, you are greater, I realize even though I, you and I have been born again, we've given our hearts to Jesus, we'll never fully understand him. But the Bible does tell us this in the book of Romans, chapter 1 and verse 20. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Though everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. Look at this, his eternal power and divine nature. That means that when I look out at the Great Lakes, I can see the invisible qualities of God, his power and his nature. When I'm in the mountains or when I'm in the, in, in the prairies, wherever I go, I can see the qualities of God. Now, let me see if I can help you understand this. I'm going to put, ask them to put an image up, and I'm going to ask you who the artist is, and let's see if you can tell me. Will you put the first image up? Who painted that? Michelangelo. Very good. Put the next one up, please. Who painted that? Oh, you got, Becky, they're art students. They're much smarter than me. Put the next one up, my favorite artist. <laughs> Who painted that? Charles Schultz. You see, each one of those paintings, we can look at the quality of the painting. We can look at the image of the painting, and we know who the artist was. And when I look at you, I see the artist. When I look at creation, I see the artist. You tell me something about God. Nature tells me something about God. It also tells me when I look at Jesus, everything I need to know about God because I can know God through Jesus. Because when Jesus walked the face of this earth, he was showing me exactly what God is like. His love, his mercy, his compassion. The Bible says, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. How has God spoken to us? He's spoken to us in the very life of Jesus Christ. He shows me what God is like. You know Jesus, you know God. But secondly, I can know God through the Bible. Because the spoken word also matters. It's not only the life of Jesus, but it's the word of God once delivered to all the saints. This is an interesting passage, I think, in John chapter 20 and verse 30. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written, read it with me, 
so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Why are these written? So that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. What is he saying to us? God reveals himself to us in the life of Christ. God reveals himself to us in the word of God. And this is what the Bible then says in James 9, 23 and verse 24. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you all to memorize this verse, to just commit this verse to memory. This is what the Lord says, don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. Now stop for just a moment. Why would the wise boast in their wisdom? They want to boast about how much they know because they want to be influential. Why would the powerful boast in their power? Because they want to rule. And why would the rich boast in their riches? Because they want to be like an imperialist or an emperor that everything belongs to them. And don't we all, now let's don't raise hands here, but don't we all know people who love to brag about how much they know? We call them a know-it-all. Don't we, like to, don't we all know about people who like to brag about how much they own? Yeah. Don't we all know people who like to brag about how much influence they have or power they have? But the Bible says if you have those things, they're gifts to be stewarded, not to be boasted about. If you have power, if you have wealth, if you have riches, if you have influence, you're not to boast about those things, but those who wish to boast, and I wish to boast this morning. How many of you wish to boast? Can I see your hand? Oh, you don't know because your mama told you you're not supposed to brag. Those of you who want to boast, they should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who likes to condemn, no, who demonstrates unfailing love and brings justice and righteousness to the earth. I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. Can we give him another hand of praise this morning? Come on, victory. That's who our God is. That's who Jesus revealed to us. And so I hope you'll leave this place wanting to brag a little bit this morning. You want to boast and say, I know the Lord of love. I know the Lord of justice. I know the Lord of peace. And he is my best friend. Second thing I can do is I can prove God's friendship. I can prove God's friendship. Now, there is a movie that I watched years ago, and I had to watch it again. Then I had to watch it again. Becky could not stand the whole movie. So some of you may go, I don't like you anymore, but this was a great movie. I watched the movie Tombstone. Great movie. Tombstone. Now, I'm not recommending you all go watch it because there's some language in it, but you know, you got to understand, I had relatives that fought out there, okay? My dentist was a nephew of Doc Holliday. I am a nephew of, 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 of Ike Clanton's, okay? So down through the ages, my dentist was the nephew of Doc Holliday, who was the enemy of the Clantons. But we were both brothers in Christ, and we used to have the most fun telling these stories. But in the movie Tombstone, after a really dangerous gunfight, Doc Holliday is real sick. He's left his sick bed to come help Wyatt Earp in this battle. 
And they're by a, they're by a brook. Wyatt's being kind of reflective standing by the brook. And one of the gunfighters, they asked Doc Holliday, they says, Doc, why did you get out of your sick bed? Why did you join this battle? And Holiday, wheezing and coughing, looks at him and says, because Wyatt Earp is my friend. And the gunfighter says, well, heck, I got lots of friends. And Holiday said this, I don't have many friends. I don't have many friends. And what that said to me as I rewatched and rewatched that scene was through the years when trouble comes, you know who your friends are because friends were born for a time of adversity. And this is where you and I get to prove God's friendship for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. We're Christ's representatives and God uses us uses you, uses me, to persuade men and women, drop your differences and enter into God's work of what? Making things right between them. In other words, becoming friends with God. We're speaking for Christ himself now. This is how we speak for Jesus. Become friends with God. Read it with me. He's already a friend with you. Say it again. He's already a friend with you. Please say it one more time. He's already a friend with you. Who is he talking to? Lost people. People who don't think God matters. People who do not believe in God. People who hate God or are angry at God. God is saying to them, I am not your enemy. I am your friend. Hallelujah. That's the message that Jesus came and brought to us. We prove it by what he did for you and me. We share our story. This morning when I took the offering, I talked about our time. I talked about our talent. I prayed about our treasure. But we also have a testimony or our story that we're faithful for. The Bible tells us in John 15 and verse 13, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Who is a friend? A friend is someone you enjoy being close to. A friend is someone whose presence is enjoyable. I mean, you find delight in their company. I have friends in this congregation and friends in this community. People I just delight to be with. We laugh together. We pray together. We share together. Sometimes we weep together. But a friend doesn't bail on you when the joy is gone. A friend doesn't bail on you when times get rough. And you see, Jesus shares this, look at this again, in John 15. Jesus is teaching right after his last dinner with his friends. And Peter makes this dramatic statement, I'll never forsake you, I'll never abandon you. And then in the garden, all of a sudden, all of Jesus' friends abandon him. And Jesus is the only one that stays cool, calm, and collected. Jesus heals his enemy's ear. You see, what I've discovered about friendship is true friends, they also don't bail on you, but they don't help you slide in your integrity. They don't tempt you to give up your faith. They don't tempt you to deny the Lord. They stay by your side through whatever you're facing. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or X as they call it now, Snapchat, 
You may have lots of so-called friends on these social media presence, but there's only one friend that sticks closer than a brother, and his name is Jesus. And unlike Doc Holliday, Jesus has lots of friends. Second thing is he takes me into his confidence. In John 15 and verse 15, you're my friend since I've told you everything the Father told me. Becky and I were out walking together Thursday afternoon, and we were walking through our subdivision, and she's telling me about a paper that she was just finishing up in her master's, and we were talking about trust and how that when you trust somebody, you share your confidences with them, and when you share those confidences with them, you don't go home and put your head on a pillow and worry that they're going to spill your secrets. Jesus takes us into his confidence. Jesus takes our confidence we give to him, and he doesn't broadcast it to the world. I know there's coming a time where the Bible says that every thought of our hearts are going to be judged and everything we've ever done is going to be judged. But for the Christian, we don't live in fear of that because we live under the blood of Jesus Christ. It's why that thing that Abraham was doing that was so weird with God, he's trying to build a bridge. He's trying to save Sodom. Why he stopped at 10, I don't know. But it's what makes Jesus' priestly ministry at Calvary so important. For what Jesus did at Calvary in shedding his blood for your sins and my sins not only wipes away our sins, but when I get to heaven, every thought, every deed, every good deed, every bad deed, everything, I will simply have one case to plead. I plead the blood of Jesus Christ that covers all of my sin. I am not here because I'm a good man. I'm not here because I've been a Christian or a pastor. I am here because of my friend Jesus Christ. Can we give him a hand of praise for that? You see, what made this 21 days of prayer so important, and for all of you who fasted with us those 21 days and prayed for your friends, what you did was you expressed the true intimacy, as St. Augustine put it. Augustine said, true prayer is nothing but love. True prayer is nothing but love. Now let me show you what you did. When Jesus was praying in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21, as he was praying, the heavens opened. When you and I are praying for our lost friends, the heavens opened. And how many of you remember what happened as Jesus was praying? The Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove. That's what happened in this service last week when people were crossing the line. That's what happened when our Jewish friends were talking about what they experienced here at our church. You see, friends, the church used to be a house of prayer. The church used to be a place of prayer. And now we're also worried about getting the right kind of service, the right kind of music, the right kind of lights, the right kind of lasers, the right kind of fog machines, the right kind of meetings, a committee for this or a committee for that, or how can we build a more modern building, or how can we build a more useful building, how can we build a more expensive building, a cheaper building. The church gets involved with everything, but the one thing that Jesus really got talked about when he said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, a light show, a band, a preacher is not going to open up the windows of heaven, but when people fast and pray, the windows of heaven are opened up, and the Holy Spirit is poured out, and lost people come to know Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Do you get it? That's the key that Jesus was showing us in his life. John, 1 John 5, verse 14, 
we have courage in God's presence because we are sure that he hears us if we ask him for anything that is according to his will. He hears us whenever we ask him. And since we know that this is true, we also know that he gives us what we ask from him. Would you stand with me this morning? And I want to walk you through this growth work. This gives me so much confidence in my time of prayer. And you want to, don't need your notes because we've already filled them in for you on the growth work. But Shakespeare said something in Hamlet that I think is worth sharing with all of us this morning. This above all, to thine own self be true. And it must follow as the night, the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. What was Shakespeare saying there? He said, first of all, if you don't know yourself and if you're not true to who you are, you can never be true to anybody else. And friends, I want you to hear me on this because this is so important. Whether you disbelieve, whether you've disregarded the thought of God, whether you're like some people that have come to this church that are atheists and are now passionate followers of Jesus Christ, you will never know yourself, as I said at the first of this message, until first of all, you know God. And when you know God, you know that his will to save is so much greater than his will to condemn sin. For God condemns sin in Christ at Calvary is what the Bible teaches us. And so for each of us, I think we have to answer some very basic questions that Hopefully, you'll take a different look at than what your Psych 101 taught you in college. And that is, answer this question, who am I? The Bible says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. Those of us that are adoptive parents, there's a common phrase that we share forever families forever families my daughter didn't even know that but when she looked at me one day after a particularly difficult time when she was only five years old she looked at me and she says you are my forever daddy and we both wept together this morning before you leave this place I want you to close your eyes and look up to heaven God is your forever father this morning can you say amen to that? Secondly, who do I love? That's a good question. I love this woman. I love being with her. I love holding her hand. I love waking up beside her in the morning. I love doing life with her. I love my kids. I love you. I, I love doing life with you. I, I love our community. But a promise that we made in our marriage, a promise that I, I made to this congregation, to my children, a promise I made to my friends. If you ever screw up, or if I ever screw up, I'm willing to face whatever comes with you because I love you. I will never say, there, there, that's okay. But I will say, we're going to get through this together. Can you say amen? That's what it means to love. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is equally important. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So if I get this right, Jerry, I can't love God if I don't love you. Loving you is easy, Jerry. During SEC football, loving your wife when Georgia plays Louisiana, that's going to be, no, I'm teasing. That's another story. But aren't there people that you find it more difficult to love than others? And you're being most like Jesus, not when you love the lovely, but when you love the unlovely. And then this final question, what am I supposed to do? I give you the whole verse that you can read later. Can I just read you this and we'll pray? Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit? And how will the Holy Spirit lead you? He'll lead you through His Word. He'll lead you through the life of Jesus. He'll lead you to forgive. He'll lead you to share. He'll lead you until gradually you become more and more like your Father who is in heaven. Can you say amen to that? So will you bow your heads with me and let me pray for you today. Jesus, we want to be led by your Spirit. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll wipe away every sense of shame or guilt. God, that can only come through faith in you. For you know my every thought, you know my every desire. You have shown me and everyone in this room, we are not insignificant. And that Jesus is one life of righteousness covers a world's sinful humanity for all who put their faith in him. So if that's you, would you just join me in prayer right now and you say, I want to put my faith, I want to put my trust in Jesus. And just pray, you can pray this quietly, but pray it sincerely. Say, Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son not to condemn me, but through him, I might be saved. Help me to begin to see myself as you see me. I don't understand it all, but I believe that Jesus' righteousness takes away all my sin and releases me from the judgment of sin. So as much as I know how, I give my life to you. In Jesus' name I pray. While every head is bowed, if you prayed that, would you just lift up your hand and let me know you're praying that with me, you're trusting Christ. God bless you, God bless you, God bless you, and God bless you. Someone else, several, God bless you. I see your hand, buddy. Thank you. God bless you, ma'am. Wow. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for this now and just thank him? Mm.
And I want you just to pray with me just for a moment longer, everyone in the church. Lord, we ask you to help us to continue to pray for our friends and for our community and for our church, for our children, our grandchildren, for our spouses, that the windows of heaven might be opened up upon them and that the Holy Spirit will descend upon them with the same love and anointing that you gave to Jesus Christ. This I pray in his holy name. Amen. Four different times the judge looked at us. Four different times he said to us, Mr. and Mrs. Clanton, Andrew, Christopher, Benjamin and Amy is your son, your daughter. Just as though they were your own flesh and blood, they are your children. The three boys were babies. Amy was five years old. And sitting in the judge's office in my lap, she went, yes, just like that. You can walk out of this room going, yes. I am a forever child of God. May the Father in heaven who loved you and adopted you through the shed blood of his Son cause you to realize just who you are. You are a child of the King today. Go in his name and in peace today. God bless you.